chapter 14. While you're finding your place in your Bible in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, I'll give you a few words of overview to help frame not just what we're going to do today, but what we're going to be doing in the weeks ahead. We make these sermon cards by series available in the Welcome Center, and so you can pick one up on the way out if you'd like. Uh, also, we make this available online through our website. You can find it there. It lays out the texts that we plan to preach uh, throughout a certain four-month period of the year. Now, that could change. But better to prepare than to change than not to prepare at all. When we're reading the same scriptures together, we found that the Lord does powerful things. So if that's not your custom, we hope that you will do that. Again, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25 this morning. And this is uh, an expositional preaching, uh, but an exposition does not have to be consecutive through a book for it to be expositional. Expositional preaching is that which focuses on explaining or expositing the meaning of one text of Scripture. It's typically done verse by verse, which, if done properly, necessitates that both the direction and content of the sermon is determined by the text itself. This serves to both minimize the preacher's intentional or unintentional biases and maximize the impact of the text itself on the hearers. So we are convictional about expositional preaching, and normally it runs verse by verse through a book. However, at this point in time, we are going to do a series of sermons over these weeks, today, next week, and the following week, where we talk about the theme of discipleship. And today's sermon comes from Luke, and we're talking about what trips us up in discipleship. Next week's sermon comes from Colossians, and we're talking about what keeps us going in discipleship. And then the next week after that, we're going to have a guest here, a dear friend of mine, Brother Charles Kavanaugh, and he is going to talk about what gets us home in discipleship, what gets us all the way home. So what trips us up, what keeps us going, what gets us home. Today is what trips us up. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke with some understanding. Luke was a medical doctor. He wrote two volumes in the Bible, for sure, the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. They kind of fit together. Luke wrote to tell Jesus' work as the apex of history and the gospel power in forming a people. The book of Luke could have been written as early as the 1860s and likely was. Dr. Luke wrote with precise use of the Greek language, for he was an intelligent man. He's a companion of Paul the Apostle and missionary. Ancient biographies and mysteries, like Luke is writing here, were written to intend with, with an intent for the reader, like Theophilus specifically, but also for the broader readership like all of us. And so if you were to look at Luke chapter 1, you'd find that this book is written to a most excellent Theophilus, one of which we have in this church, by the way. We have a young boy named Theophilus. But also it was written to a wider audience than just Theophilus. Luke is for us too. It's for us today. Luke's Gospel uses all different types of literature to convey the Gospel message. There are hymns, and there are speeches, there's genealogy, and there's miracles, there's callings, and apocalyptic material, and parables, and prayers, and proverbs. The flow of the book of Luke follows the Christians, the Christmas time information as well. It starts with, with Christians' Christmas time, like the birth of Jesus and the Song of Mary. It also follows them with Jesus' pre-ministry and his actual ministry in Galilee and the journey to Jerusalem. 
And the book of Luke ends with Jesus' passion itself, him on the cross, dead, buried, and resurrected, and explaining himself post-resurrection on the walk to Emmaus to his followers, and then discovering, oh my, the whole testament was about him, all about Jesus. It's the framing lens for everything that we believe in faith and practice in life. Luke points to the fulfillment of how as when we trust in Jesus, we find a hope in every single one of his promises. Because just the same as he has fulfilled the Old Testament in his coming, he will fulfill the Old and the New Testament in his second coming. Today picks up kind of in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. It picks up in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He had set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And that's where he was going. And he was going there, and this is instructive, with intent to die. It was truly a martyr's mission. He was going to die for the cause. And it picks up on this journey to Jerusalem with some teaching, with a crowd around, embedded in a series of familiar parables about what it means to be God's people, like the prodigal son, maybe not that, or the lost sheep, or the parable of the widow. It's, it's in a, a set of scriptures with crowds all around him, and it's in a set where he's telling them the truth about discipleship and about, in this case, counting the cost of deeper discipleship. So before we read the text, I'd just like to ask you, please pray about this little mini-series in discipleship. Pray about how it would affect our congregation, how it would affect you, how it would affect your family, to more deeply understand discipleship for you. I mean, our calling is to make disciples for Christ, to be sure. So what does that even mean? I fear it's often misunderstood. So we want to reorient ourselves around discipleship in the gospel in these weeks ahead and even today. I'd like to also ask you to pray for me as I prepare to preach on this same theme at a young adults conference on October 23rd. I'm going to be preaching in Perrysville, Ohio to some young adults, mainly like 18 to 30 is the age bracket, mainly 20-somethings, mainly singles. I did this last year and I'm doing it again this year. I'm actually partnering with that guest preacher, Charles Cavanaugh, who's going to be here on October 11th, and I'm partnering with him to, to help bring the messages as they put on the conference. They do a wonderful job at the conference. And my job is to come and do good counseling with the young people, as well as young adults, I should say, they're very sharp. All, all very sharp. If you know somebody that might be interested in coming, invite them, because it's a, it's a life-changing event that they do, and I'm there to provide biblical counseling and sermons. So that's the end of October, and I'll be away on October 25th for that, that interest you in this literature at the Welcome Center. But please pray about these sermons here and those sermons that are going to go there. Now, with that backdrop, let's look at our text in Luke chapter 14. Jesus uses two illustrations in this text to make his point. He uses an illustration about building and an illustration about battle. And Jesus teaches us to think in terms of years instead of just, instead of just days or months. He teaches us to number our days by thinking in years. He teaches us here that our greatest gladness comes not from following the court of public opinion, but in staying with a building project of faith all the way to completion, a faith worth fighting for. Jesus is completely worth the cost. Nevertheless, in order to find a pace to finish your race, you must count the cost. That's what this text is going to show us. It's a call not just to architects and generals, to foremen and forgers of all their plans, but this is a call to all of Jesus' people not to float willy-nilly through this life, but to think deeply and intentionally about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. After all, that's what discipleship means. The Greek word methetes means follower or learner. Follower of Jesus, learner, or disciple. So discipleship is rooted in a learning experience. It's, it's rooted in learning all the way through life. 
It's, it's, it's rooted in following someone even when it's hard. It's rooted in, that's what discipleship is in Jesus. It's rooted in discipline. So your gifts are given to you to help with discipleship in the church. So we have to, to, to go about this in a wise manner. Jesus tells it to be so. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read the text. I'm going to tell you how we're going to go about it right after I read it. And I hope that it's profitable for you as you learn or disciple today. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he, and I want you to say these next four words, four words with me, cannot be my disciple. When you see that, I'll ask you to read it with me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? And count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now get ready for it. You're going to talk again. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, we want to turn a cannot into a can. So how do we do that? We have to first figure out what it means to cannot be a disciple. So we figure out how we can be a disciple. So I want to talk to you today about discipleship trip hazards. Things that as you're running the race of faith, what can trip you up? And in fact, I think it's Jesus' intention here to communicate to us about not getting tripped up, but, but also to communicate to the free believer, the person that hasn't believed yet, but is considering the faith, to talk to that person and say, you need to count the cost, because the faith is about finishing, it's not just about starting. Jesus has promised to help you all the way home, but there is a sobriety that needs to come with becoming a Christian, with entering into Christian discipleship. There's a weight to it, and that's the, that's the kind of the the tone I want to set today, because I think it's the tone the text sets, is there's a gravity to discipleship. It's not to be entered into lightly or mildly. And so from this text today, I'm going to talk about four trip hazards in sequence. The first one is the trip hazard while running the race, the trip hazard of popularity. If you're taking notes, you might write that down. The first one is the trip hazard of popularity. We're going to see that in verses 25 and 26. The second is the trip hazard of unintentionality. It's a big word. Unintentionality. And we're going to see that in verse 27. The third trip hazard is isolation. Isolation. And that's going to encompass the two parables within this text, verses 28 through 30 and then 31 and 32. So that's the bulk of the text, is the trip hazard of isolation. And then fourthly, the trip hazard of selfishness. Selfishness, And when I talk about selfishness in the fourth segment of this text, I want to look simply at verse 33, that last verse that we read. So I'm going to recap it one more time because this is your map for your message. Number one, popularity. Number two, unintentionality. Number three, isolation. And number four, selfishness. So number one, how do we avoid the trip hazard of 
popularity as we are running the race. Well, let's refresh on the verses in question. Verses 21, I'm sorry, 25 and 26. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus. Okay, pause. This is the trip hazard of popularity. Is there just a couple people accompanying Jesus, or is there a buku of people accompanying Jesus? Which one? A buku of people. It's crowded. There are crowds. Now, to put it in modern terminology, this is like you suddenly, because you're an interesting person, and you found that you know kind of secret to popularity, and, and Jesus was about 30 years old, so let's say you're about 30 years old, you kind of figured it out, and you've got this massive uptick in popularity. Maybe it's reflected in social media, perhaps, where you've gone from really being a relative nobody in social media to having this massive following. You're just, in this case, a simple tradesman who's actually a carpenter with calluses on his hands. His dad was a carpenter, took care of his family. And there's this massive uptick in popularity. Now, I don't want metaphors to break down because Jesus is not you. He's divine. But he is like you in that he's a man, only he never sinned. He's both God and man. And he's often operating in his humanity. Certainly as he went to the cross, he was, wasn't he? Because he just loved to hang him up and kill him. Because he thought that that was the way to accomplish the mission. It certainly was. And so think with your humanity here about the allure of popularity when you got crowds around you. I mean, you can monetize this. There are things that you can do with crowds following you that you cannot do when the crowds won't follow you. I mean, so many times we just want to have people like us. We want people to be endeared to us. We want to figure out the secret to being popular. And some of us will never face this temptation because we don't figure it out. But for the few of you that do figure out what it means to be popular, you will face the trip hazard as you're running the race of faith of popularity. And it's very real. Jesus was so interesting in the faith that people wanted to listen to his teachings. As a rabbi, he was interesting to people. They wanted to mildly follow him. But when it came to calls for deeper discipleship, the crowds went up. They thinned out. I want to say to you this morning, that as you follow Jesus faithfully, you may have the God-given ability to achieve a certain amount of clout in this culture. But I would argue that if you're following the example of Jesus carefully, there will be times when your commitment to Him will necessarily cause the winnowing of the crowds of people that claim to be following if you live to a ripe old age and that never happens, I think you should question whether or not you're being tripped up by popularity. Because surely we are not better than our master who said people hated me because of my cause. Now, I'm not saying at all that you should go out there and try to make enemies. That's not my point. The Bible, matter of fact, says that we should live such good lives in 1 Peter chapter 2 that with our honorable conduct that those people would actually see our testimony even as they malign us for our faith and our truth-based living and on the day of the Lord's visitation they would be found to be saved. 1 Peter 2.13 says that. I'm not saying you should go out and just make a mess of your relationships. I'm saying there are those waypoints when if you deny Jesus, if you deny Jesus, at the very least, you've been tripped up in your faith. 
Because to follow Jesus necessarily means to bump up against the mores of the world around you from time to time. Jesus is not motivated by the crowds and what they want to hear in this moment. And there are moments when you should not be either. The first trip hazard is people pleasing. It's the trip hazard of popularity. And this cuts deeper than just the crowds, although that's enough sometimes to trip us up. It cuts deeper than that and cuts down to biological family. Verse 26 is a staunch verse, isn't it? Consider it. If anyone comes to me, to, in other words, to be my disciple, and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he, and I had to read earlier, cannot be my disciple. It's a, it's a really strong way to state it, isn't it? Well, what is it that, that Jesus is getting at here? Well, hate in this culture and in this language is a lesser love. What it's implying is a reorientation from my biological family and my popularity therein as my main aim to the family of God being my, my main aim and being faithful to my biological family because of that faith. Do you realize that despite your greatest desires, that everyone in your biological family may not be saved? Do you understand that? Have you come to terms with that? I'm not saying you shouldn't keep praying for them. You should. I'm not saying you shouldn't beg the Lord to see them saved. You should. But do you understand that it might not happen and you could reasonably spend eternity with the family of God and not with certain biological family. Now, all the more reason to do family worship time, to take seriously the children's Sunday schools and to come to vacation Bible school, all the things that you do to teach the gospel to your children. All the more reason to. All the reason for us to hope that every single one of our children and aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents, all of them would be saved. Spouses would be saved. I'm simply saying, when it comes down to an orientation of focus on that eternal family, if it conflicts with an interest of this biological family, you need to decide in advance, or you won't, which one are you going to prioritize? Are you going to serve this family by seeing that family? Are you going to turn a blind eye to that family because of the whimsical nature of this family? I mean, it gets down to how you handle retirement, inheritances, it gets down to how you handle the expenditures of funds, and we'll get to that later in the sermon. It gets down to how you think about your priorities and your equity. It gets down to a lot of stuff. And you say, well, Pastor Matt, that seems awful personal. Well, you just read this text on balance and see if it's awful personal. It's awful personal. Unless you renounce all your stuff and don't get the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's a very personal stuff. Listen, we'll get to that, but I just want to say about this. Obviously, the idea of unstewarding your family in your home is not in view here. That's not what this is being talked about. This is staunch language to say this people hate me too. Family didn't accept me either. And you're going to face the same thing if you're a faithful follower of me. Prepare for the fact that your greater love for me is at times going to be visible as a lesser love for my biological not an excuse not to steward your family. All these other verses that talk about such things would be in question. It is a statement, a staunch statement that says, 
even my own biological family didn't understand me, and you're going to face that too. And you just need to buckle up for that because this is a trip hazard. If you are a people pleaser, you're going to trip in your Christian life. Discipleship is a trip hazard is popularity number one or two. Second trip hazard is unintentionality. It's a big word. Unintentionality. I couldn't find a better word, so I'm just going to go with it. Unintentionality. A lack of intentionality. Unintentionality. I could have put it real, real kind of staunch and said laziness, but I don't think that gets at it. I think that we can have a lot of low-grade frenetic activity around spiritual things, but yet still be unintentional about our discipleship. Let's, let's take it, let's see what, what, how this might play. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, you said it before, say it again, cannot be my disciple. So we want to turn a cannot to a can. So how do we do that? Well, we bear our own cross and we come after Jesus. It sounds and is highly intentional. It's intentional. How you live your life in discipleship is intentional. You make intentional choices, hard choices, to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus. Now, this lack of intentionality or unintentionality looks like, a, at times, an unwillingness to do my part in my own discipleship. So, so this, is, this is what I mean. I want to both brag on our older generation of faith, and I want to offer just a, just a quick just a quick little possible trick for you as well. But I'm going to brag on There is a, something about the older generations of faith that have traveled with Jesus for decades. There is something about them that by and large they carry their own cross. That is not super needy. Like they've gotten through some things, they've seen a thing or two, they're, they're, they're to a place where they're just not super needy. Matter of fact, they figured out how not to appear needy. As I disciple young people in faith and, and talk to them about their growth in Christ, one of the things that I've come to understand is some of you don't, you can't hear the full truth yet. And so I just can't really say it like this. It's like Jesus said, I have more truth than you're now ever ready to hear. So I can't say it to you individually because if I said it to you individually, it would just overwhelm you. But collectively, counseling from the pulpit, I can say this. You need to do your part for your own discipleship in person. Stop expecting the context of bearing one another's burdens to mean you don't bear a burden at all. This verse says take responsibility for your discipleship. Bear your own cross. Do your own part. He said, well, that just doesn't sound very loving, Pastor Matt. I'm getting really bothered by this one. Well, here's the thing. When you do your part, what happens is you look over and you see other people are too. And you get that help. And that's my third point. But listen, if you're just dead weight in this thing, you got to kind of ask yourself why you're waiting on this thing. I mean, it's, if they're just dragging you constantly, you need to be intentional about your own discipleship. Look at, look at this again, these verses, to, to make this connection. Verse uh, 26 says, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So obviously you don't need to hate yourself, but you do need to love your, your own life less than Jesus. You need to love Jesus and learn to love Jesus more than your own life. That's why the Apostle Paul can model rightly and say, to live is Christ and to die is 
gain. He could say things like that because he loved himself less. This is an instructive example for us. We love ourselves less than our discipleship. We love ourselves less than Jesus. Jesus knows better than we do, and he has proven his love for us in a way that the crowds and the biological family and even our own faithfulness has proven ourselves. Now, I think it's important to say that, and then I'll offer the corrective to the seniors. It's important to say that you, you in, your, in your Christian life, you in your Christian life need to do your part, but you're not working your way to heaven. It's important for me to say that. It's, it's, you know, it's how we end the sermon, but, but it's important for me to say that. When I talk about individual responsibility, I'm not saying that if you don't do it just right, you're not going to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we are to call you to a discipleship, to a faith in Jesus that tells you on the front end to count the cost that you're going to have to bear your own cross. That's what it means. Now, let me talk to Stephen for just a moment with this, within this point before I move on to point three. There is a, a tripwire within a tripwire for you, too. Some of you need to hear this. You are so adept at not looking like you need any help bearing your own cross that you tend to downplay your night when you really do need the help of the body. You just tend to downplay your night. I don't want to be a burden on the body. I don't want the body to have to pray for me that way. I don't want the body, the body to have to bring me a meal at that time. I, don't want the, I, don't, I know they have a lot going on. I know. Listen, what you're doing is robbing everybody else in the church from serving you. Why do you think that you need to be the only people that serve? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you let the body serve you? Why wouldn't you humble yourself and let somebody 20 years or younger serve you if you have a surgery, if you have a wayward child, if you have a niece or a nephew that needs to be born again? Why wouldn't you share those tears with your fellow faith family that you're going to spend eternity with? Why wouldn't you face discipleship with them? This is not a one-way thing. If you learn to, to bear your own cross, praise God in terms of carrying your own cross. But there are times, and you know as well as I do, when you're walking along, and I mean, you just get the wind knocked out from you, and you really need the rest of the body, and you really should look over and find somebody else and say, can you help me? Because I really have only got one strong leg right now. I've had the wind knocked out from you. And if you're too prideful for that, if that's your definition of what it means to be a Christian, you need to read Luke chapter 14 freshly and let it impact you today and the intentionality that you need to have for your discipleship. You as a person of faith cannot trip up on popularity and cannot trip up with unintentionality. You need to bear your own cross. But point number three, you need to bear your cross while sometimes allowing others to help you with that cross. Now, in order to articulate this point, I want you to turn back a few pages in Luke to chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 22 through 26. It's going to state similar language in the positive. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 22 and ending in verse 26 for our purposes here today. Saying, Jesus saying, the Son of Man, talking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And that's framing all of this deeper discipleship talk. It's framing our view of cross carrying. Now verse 23. And he said to you all, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. Ocular faith, follow me. Discipleship language, come after me, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? 
if he gained the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his soul, implying soul for sure, suke, verse 26, but whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and my words, not his tense person, but his words, whoever is ashamed of him and his words, the things that he has said, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. It's about intentional, daily cross-carrying. Individually taking up your cross, doing your part, and walking with Christ. It's gritty. It's more about the, it's more about the metaphor of the carpenter than the congressman. It's about getting spiritual calluses on your hands. I mean, it's, it's putting that harness on the plow and walking forward. It's, it's about a certain toughness, individual responsibility. But, it's also about not being isolated. Your third trip has it. Remember, the first one popularity, the second one was unintentionality. Not doing, not carrying yours. But the third one is isolation. You, you, you're carrying your cross in your own mind. You're taking care of you and your little pod. But you're doing it in isolation. And when you get into that isolated mode, some of us have that proclivity. The thing that the trip has it here is we don't see the personal value as a consumer of faithfulness and discipleship, with faith and discipleship. We don't see the personal value of being involved in the church family. And so we isolate. And we think we're getting by just fine. But it's, you're really not. You think you are, but you're not. There's a smugness with that. And there's a rejection of Christ's mode of operations for his people in that that is utterly snobbish. Jesus intended for the local church to be. The local church is referred to as Jesus' bride. You really don't have one without the other. His death was for his bride, which is the church. I you say, you know, well, I think, you know, I really believe in the church and all that, Pastor, but, you know, we're talking about a local church. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, the church is bigger, the kingdom is bigger than any one church. But the kingdom is never spoken of as smaller than any one church. Open your Bible, Revelation 2 and 3 sometime, and read how the Lord instructed John the Apostle to write what is now the last book of our Bible to seven local churches. Open your Bible and all these beloved passages, like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And passages like that from the Episcopal literature. And notice that they are written, lettered to local churches. Jesus' completed mission on earth is then parlayed over in his authority to his followers to make followers by teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. You don't get to teaching and all without regularly interacting with one another in a local body. It requires the strength of other believers in order to get all the way home. In fact, it's God's grace on you to pull you out of hiding and waken you from blind spots. Don't trip as you're running the race of faith in your discipleship. Don't trip with isolation. And don't resent those that try to pull you out of it. Because we all are prone to it from time to time. Look back at Luke chapter 14. 
I want to make this point with the two parables Jesus tells within this, this passage this morning. This trip hazard of isolation is talked about in verses 28 through 32. First, with a building metaphor. For which of you desiring, desiring, you have a desire to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost. But before you stand up, you sit down and count the cost. There's something there. Whether he has enough to complete it, are you able to teleos it, for those of you that have been doing the, the children's ministry? It's teleos, is all in Luke's gospel. He's going to use it a couple of times here, and he uses a synonym as well here. Are you going to be able to finish it, complete it? To present us complete Christ? Are you going to be able to finish that building? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish teleos. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, and he wasn't able to teleos that thing. And then he goes to another parable, verse 31, makes a similar point. By the way, just to say something about this before we go on to verse 31. Have you ever, do you see very many construction crews with just one person in isolation building a house? What if it's a big tower? You gonna build that thing all by yourself? You gonna set them trusses by yourself? How about that? Better have some heavy machinery. Doesn't this parable imply the usness? The we? Now, I mean, I've got mine covered, it's just me. Look what Jesus says here. Look at the, okay, how many of you, let's go this way. How many of you think you're going to go to war by yourself? Just you. Just your little pod. Is that what this is, this is supposed to be talking about? Look at, look at verse 32. Talking about a war now. I'm sorry, verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, won't sit down first? Sit down. This is a sober mindedness. Have a seat. Think about this discipleship you're about to sign on for. Who wouldn't sit down first and deliberate? I mean, that does not sound like some euphoric frenzy of trying to beg you to be saved in an emotional moment and never follow up again in another day of your life, does it? Does that sound like easy believism? Like I just said I believe, but then I never did anything else with God's people again for us in our life. No, it doesn't sound anything like it, does it? We need to go ahead and bury that mistake that was perpetuated in some segments of evangelicalism in the 19th and 20th century church. If I can just get you to pray a prayer, if you'll just check a box, in some cases even, if on the 65th verse of just as I am, if you'll just walk an aisle, and I'll know you're saved. Now, you might have been saved in that like I was, but you can't know that you know based on simply some kind of an emotional outburst. The way that you know that you know is that you walk with Jesus through your life and then you dwell in his house forever. This is a deliberate. We deliberate as we're entering into discipleship. That is the context here, is to count the cost of discipleship before you go to war with Jesus, because it's a war. Before you build calluses in your hand, building that tower. It says here that deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he can't, he has the foresight, he's counted the cost, he's deliberated, he's set down before he stood up, and he's deliberated, and if not, while the other is a great way off, verse 32, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. Uh, Luke is famous for the parable of the shrewd dealer, the shrewd manager, these kinds of passages. This is a theme in the gospel. There is a, a deliberateness, a shrewdness in your discipleship, an intentionality, an intentionality 
that is played out not in isolation, but with the group, the members of a local church that you walk in covenant with. The covenant sounds real scary until you understand this. When we make a covenant in a local church, unless you move away and become another part of a local church, whatever. In covenant, in membership covenant, we don't have in view whether or not you're having a good day, a good month, a good year, even a good decade. What we have in view is, and this is next week's sermon, seeing you presented as complete in Christ, as teleos, as mature in Christ, Colossians 1.28. So when we're walking together through this life, we're picking you up on a trip, we're getting you back to bearing you on the cross, we're pulling with you. It's a, it's a team effort to build that construction. It's a, it's a whole group. It's, it's a, an army effort to go to war. It's a whole group. And we're walking together and we're seeing that end goal. We're seeing that end goal. We're seeing how to finish. It's not just about how to start. Are we able to finish? We have to finish in the strength of Jesus. But not individually, not in isolation. He never intended that. The trip hazard of isolation is this third point. This is to bear it a little longer. Consider how similar to this that the book of Nehemiah is. Have you ever read the book of Nehemiah? Think about it in its construction, if you have. If you haven't, I'll just tell you, for those of you who haven't read the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah repents on behalf of the people, read that worship service a couple weeks ago, and the people are contrite, and they're able to go back home after the exile and rebuild, and Ezra the priest is around, and is worship again, and they return to their homeland, and there are hagglers. There's there are there are those that don't want it to happen. And so Nehemiah has two things he has to do at the same time. He has to build and he has to battle. He has to stand watch at night, the people have to stand watch, and they have to build at the exact same time. Build and battle. And so in the body of Christ, we have to all work together in order to build the edifice of faith and to battle those that want to tear it down. I mean, there are, there are issues we have to face within and without. I think Nehemiah most certainly parallels these two parables in Luke chapter 14, verses 27 to 32. Don't you? And we can make many more applications, I think, about building and battling from these parables. But suffice to say, for our time today, you can think about that on your own. I'm satisfied you will. There's some wonderful thinkers in this room where you go away and think about sermons. Most of you do, right? Maybe all of you do. So you can think about that and lay that over with Nehemiah and talk about it in your, in your time together in prayer with your family and whatnot, or with one of us, one of our elders. But don't think that war. And don't think that construction happens in isolation. That is a tripwire from the enemy. Discipleship is not about popularity. It is not about unintentionality. It's very much about intentionally taking care of your business. But it's also not about isolation. It's about taking care of your business with lots of other people in the faith so that whenever something happens, they can be there with you and help you through. Fourthly and finally, my final point in the sermon is the trip hazard of selfishness. The trip hazard of selfishness. Um, this one hits pretty close to home. This is a tough one. But it's there and we need to look at it. It's tough for me. It's probably difficult for you. It's tough for you as well. Um, I, su 
something we should just dive into together. Here's what it says in, in verse number 33. So therefore, anytime there's a therefore, we have to ask, what's a therefore? It's sort of trying to make the concluding point in the syllogism above. It's trying to tell you how you should conclude the matter. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Please leave it up. The conclusion of the matter. Any one of you considering discipleship who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Just keep it up. You know, they say you keep people with what you get them with. If you get them to church with trinkets and gizmos and five dollars at the door, then you better keep it up because you're going to keep them. If that's how you get it. Jesus never intended for us to get people with trinkets and gizmos and five dollars at the door. Jesus said, I'll get my people because my sheep know the sound of my voice. I'll get my people through you as ambassadors when you tell them what it means to be inside. May us never be the people that tries to make walking with Jesus sound easier than it actually is. You're going to lose followers from time to time on social media because popularity is not more important than Jesus. Even some of your family won't understand you and it's going to cause friction at the Thanksgiving table. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And you're going to do it with people that frustrate you and sometimes you're going to want to pick up your toys and go home and take your rest for no more. And you're not going to be able to be isolated because that's a trip wire from this. Talking about being Jesus' disciple to someone that is not yet committed to being Jesus' disciple is a weighty thing. To talk in terms of church history, it's more like the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield than it is about the second great awakening with Charles Finn. We're not trying to get emotional, emotional outbursts. We're trying to say to you, it is a way to think Captain Cost and follow Jesus anyway. It might cost you your life, but your only hope in life and death is Jesus. That's it. And with that sobriety, Jesus calls people to himself. But let us not try to alter the gospel in the name of getting people to the gospel. Don't do that. It is a fatal error. I told you this text not just preaches to the believer, but also to the unbeliever. There's, there's like this both end, I think, in this text. Because it's kind of like the parable of the sower. The person coming to faith that they're going to last, what they need to know is what they're actually buying into. They're actually saying, he, he's, he's my main thing. I'm going to love him more than everything else. And so they wait, they, they wait with it. There's anxiousness with it. But also, it's, it's for the believer. And here's how. You're about the business of reorientating over and over again as you go into deeper levels of gospel application. You're about the business of again and again renouncing all that you have. This verse 33 says it. In the positive, you who have renounced all that you have can be my disciple. You'll be known as my disciple because you've renounced all that you have. What do you have? I mean, what could, what could you be talking about? What do I have? Maybe you have a home or a car or a boat or I don't know, a second home or an apartment or an income or a, I don't know. You have, a, you have a, an instrument or a, I don't know what you have. You have a wardrobe. What do you have? Verse 33 says, 
renounces all that you have can be my disciple. This is the tripwire of stuff, of selfishness. The trip hazard. Isn't it true our stuff gets in our way of our better judgment for Jesus from time to time? Well, we really hedge our decisions based on how this is going to affect my bottom line, don't we? And there's a certain amount of shrewdness that comes into being a Christian. This text says it. But there's also a certain amount of abandonment of my own self-interest that's pivotal to discipleship. Want to be Jesus' disciple? Renounce your stuff. I guess in a way we're kind of all minimalists here, right? I mean, how many verses do you see with you all behind? Nobody takes their stuff with them to the graveyard, let alone to heaven. Steward it? Definitely. But leverage it for gospel causes now. Leverage it for ministry and mission now. Leverage it now. For Jesus, this is an active while you're alive renouncing all that you have. And you can be a disciple. Listen to me, unbeliever. In no way will I stand here and lie to you. I will lose credibility when you learn the truth. If you care more about being popular than you do Jesus, you can't be a disciple. If you want to do it all by yourself, he says you can't be a disciple. If you just want everybody else to do all your spiritual things, but you don't really want to be committed to spiritual things, you don't want to carry your own cross, you can't be a disciple. If you are going to cling to your stuff like this, instead of open those hands for ministry and mission to be blessed, you can't be a disciple. Perfectly no, but willingly yes. You, because of the spirit that God has placed in you, now make a volitional decision to try not to trip up. You will. Not perfectly, but intentionally. You're walking with Jesus because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You're not tripping every single leg of the race, but you are running this race. And when you do trip, you got help. But you're not constantly needing that help because of the fact that you're going and they're with you. And most of the time, it's the 10th guy on the line that needs the help. If 9 out of 10 people need the help, you're not going anywhere. So we do it both and not either or. Let me summarize and I'll conclude with a couple of cross-reference verses. You, as Christ's disciple, need to put the interests of Christ among your friends and family. You, as Christ's disciple, need to put intentionality for discipleship ahead of, eh, I'll get to it when I get to it. You, as Christ's disciple, need to put the community of faith, the local church, ahead of my isolated self-interest for us for no more. If this text says nothing else, it says that your biological family is subservient to the eternal church family. And fourthly and finally, you, as Christ's disciple, need to kill selfishness and renounce all that you have to leverage it for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that is heavy, isn't it? I was listening to uh, one of those uh, one of those reports about which song was most popular when I was a, a teenager. And there was this uh, there was this band that shall remain the name, but this band was doing really well at the time. And this particular band uh, was asked, well, "How come?" What's the secret to your success? How are you being so successful in music? And this particular band said, oh, well, success, that's easy. All it takes is all you got. Success, all it takes is all you got. Discipleship, all it takes is all you got. 
But that's really not the gospel, is it? That's what motivates you to give it all you have, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is how do we have success in our discipleship? All it takes is all he's got. It's all he's got. It's what he's done for you. That's what success is. It's again and again bowing the knee not to Caesar or king or politics. It's bowing the knee to King Jesus and trusting him. Because all that success takes, all it takes, is all he's got. It's what he's done. Listen to these verses in conclusion. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that while you were yet a sinner, God showed his love for you in this. Christ died for you. While you're still tripping, he died for you. Put your faith in him. Look at Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin, of your sins, is death, it's hell, it's eternal separation from God, but the gift that is free, that you cannot earn, the gift of God, the gospel, is eternal life in Jesus your Lord. Romans 6, 23. Fix your eyes on him, even in the midst of discipline and discipleship and hard things. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that has gone before us to heaven and be with Jesus, let us also lay aside every weight, every besetting sin, every weight, Renounce all that stuff, all that sin that holds on closely, and barnacles that come to you and cling to your body, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking not to ourselves, but to Jesus, who authored and finished, who founded and perfected our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and the seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility as himself. So against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, look at this, the Lord disciples. He disciplines, doesn't he? Those he hates, now, he didn't hate you. If you felt chastened by this message this morning, you're not felt chastened because he hates you, is he? What's it say here? The Lord disciplines the one that he what? He loves. If you have felt the conviction of the Spirit and you repent, trust Jesus for whatever tripping you've been doing, the Lord loves you. He has put himself in the place for punishment, and you no longer need to fear the wrath of God. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he receives you as his son. Would you bow your head with me and stand as we pray? God, we want to pray for the continuity of faith among the generations represented here. We want to pray for unity at Mount Vernon Baptist Church and in all the churches. We want to pray for future leaders that are being shaped and trained now to help us have a culture of true discipleship. We want to pray for the sermons on the sermon card and the studies in the church, the women's study, and the Sunday schools. We want to pray for like-minded churches to go through with true discipleship. 
You know that the Southwestern Indiana Baptist Association has their annual meeting to discuss these things next Saturday, and we pray for them, and we pray for Brother Ed Collins. We want to pray for David and Pam Wilson and their missions work, and that we would be supportive of missions and ministry and renounce our things in order to do that. We pray for those that have recently lost loved ones, and we hope that our church will be supportive of them. We pray for the family of Matthew Wilkinson, for the family of Bonnie Thomas. We pray for the family of Lloyd Younger. We hope you would care for widows such as Mrs. Mildred Younger. We pray for those that have been affected by COVID and other sicknesses. We pray for those that have been distanced from work and productivity because of waiting on a positive or negative test. We pray for comfort for those that have been in treatments and in hospitals such as Nancy Reeves and Judy Vesky. Give them a good report. We pray for Sandy Brown. She would get a good report. We pray for the family of J.R. Owen. We pray for those that are battling simple allergies that don't seem simple at all. We pray for justice in the general election because we know election has consequences. Make us a people astute to your word. We pray for those under discipline in our church that they would be restored. We pray for those who serve our church, such as the groups that cleaned our church or set it in better order a week ago Saturday and yesterday. We pray for those who volunteered to mow our yard and trim our grass. Pray for those that have prepared children's lessons and arranged materials that we might be served the word today. We pray they would be refreshed themselves. We pray for our finance committee and our nominations as they do the work of stewardship for 2021. We pray for our elders that they would have the strength to shepherd, the insight to shepherd well, serve us well. We pray for our deacons as they lead us in serving and their families. We pray they seek the Lord. We ask you to bless our offerings this week. And help us to apply this message in every aspect of our lives, named and unnamed. And we pray in the name that is above all names. And you say with me, Amen.